0: We are unsure what the sin is, what the sin is in this chapter, in chapter 38. We're unsure of what the sin is, uh, but we do know, as we read in verses 1 through 8, that it's a sin that caused health problems, health problems, right? And we're going to see here that David starts to claim his penitence before God, his remorse, his repentance before God. And we also know in, the, in, in this very same chapter about his sin, that it's one that separated, his, that separated, just like any other sin, from God. But this specific sin also separated him from others. Not just God, but his family. Not just God, but his friends. And guess what this shows us? Guess what this tells us? That when, we, when you and I, when we commit sin, it not only affects you, right? Sometimes we think, well, this is only going to affect me. And it's only going to affect now. But it also affects your friends. It also affects your family, right? It's one that separated him from God and from others. It caused extreme loneliness. Loneliness. I know that I've been in areas in my life where I've committed a sin, where I felt like David, extreme loneliness, where you feel like you don't have anyone to go to, not even God, because God cannot look down upon sin. He has to separate himself. And we also see at the end of this chapter that David admits his wrong. He confesses his sin and repents. He confesses his sin and repents, right? Having done wrong and in sorrow, David confesses and repents. Having done wrong and in sorrow, David confesses and repents. And we see that in this chapter, this is what we see. This is what we learn from God in this chapter and by the life of David, that the only hope for the believer in sin is confession Transparency and repentance. The only hope for the believer in sin is confession, transparency, and repentance. Confession, transparency, and repentance. And we're going to see that godly sorrow leads to repentance. That's the title of tonight if you write notes. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Right? And the only hope for you and I, the only hope for David in this Psalms and the other six penitential Psalms, in the state of his sin, the only hope for him and the only hope that you and I have in our sin is confession, transparency, and repentance. Having repented now due to his sorrow, he felt so much sorrow. David, because we're also going to go through chapter 39, he will develop now a wisdom. After confession, And repentance, wisdom is found. And we're gonna see that in chapter 39. But in chapter uh, 38, we're gonna see three things. And these are the points for tonight that we must confess our sins. We must confess our sins. Number two, we must be transparent before God. There's two different things. We're gonna find out what they are. We must be transparent before God. And number three, we must repent. We must repent. Number one, we must confess our sins. We're going to see that in the first eight verses. Psalms 38, verse 1. Look what it says. "O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Look at those words. Do not chasten me in your wrath, nor chasten me, or do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. What do we see? And also in verse 2, for your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. What does David say? David acknowledges that he needed to be corrected, that he needed to be punished for his sin. He just did not want to get punished in God's anger, in God's anger. He doesn't say, Lord, don't punish me, don't correct me, but what does he say? He says, don't rebuke me in your wrath, in your wrath. It's like a child to his mother, a child to his father, right? Correct me, I know I did wrong, punish me, but mom, dad, don't correct me when you're angry. Because you're going to grab the belt. You're going to grab something else. Don't correct me in your anger. I know I've done wrong, David says. But God, please, don't correct me in your wrath. In your wrath. And what do we know about the wrath of God? Is that Jesus already bore God's wrath on our behalf. It wasn't God's wrath upon David. Jesus Jesus has already bore uh, the wrath of God upon himself on behalf of you and I. Romans 5 Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, through Jesus? How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus? Jesus already bore God's wrath on our behalf. It wasn't God's wrath upon David. But what comes to you and I by God is his loving discipline. His loving discipline upon our lives. Right? We read about Jesus to the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm, lukewarm church. Revelation 3.9, Jesus, Jesus says, To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Be earnest and repent. Like a child to his father, what does David cry out? Don't correct me in your anger, in your hot displeasure. Right? What do we see? That he was mature to know that he deserved punishment. I've done wrong. I deserve punishment. In begging for mercy, he did not deny that he needed to be corrected. That he needed to be corrected. If you're a parent, how often times, as you correct your child for doing wrong, what do they do? They beg for mercy, but deny that they need to be corrected. David does not do that. He says, I know I need to be corrected, but Lord, please, don't correct me in your wrath. Don't correct me in your anger. So we often plead for mercy, And we deny that we need any correction. We often go to our prayer closets. We get on our face. We say, Lord, please, I beg you for grace. I beg you for mercy. But there's no repentance. We act as if we don't need the correction, the rebuke of God upon our lives. And we see here that from David, it's okay to plead for the mercy of God. But if God loves you, like your loving father, he has to correct you. He has to correct you. It's not the wrath of God, it's His loving kindness. It's the the loving kindness of a father who repeatedly tells his son, don't run to the street because you're going to get hit. After the second or the third time, he's going to feel the discipline of his father. Not because it's the wrath or anger of the father, but because he what? Loves him. Because he loves him. What happens in verse 2? It says, for your arrows pierce me deeply. Look at this poetry. And your hand presses me down. Think about that picture. He feels the heavy conviction and correction on his life. Have you ever felt that way? You've been found out in sin. And you're standing and sitting before the presence of God in church and in worship. And you feel the heavy hand of God pressed down upon your life in conviction. We've all been there. Right? He says, this is how I feel right now. Your arrows pierce me deeply. He uses poetry to describe how he senses the displeasure of God on his life. Have you ever felt like, I don't want to go to church tomorrow. I don't want to go to church tonight. Why? Because I feel God's displeasure. I feel nasty. I've been living in sin. He felt that. And what does he say there about, he says, your arrows pierce me deeply. Your hand presses me down. He felt physical and spiritual pain due to his sin. This is the first point of tonight, right? Confession. Confession. He's pressed down in agony. What we see here is physical manifestations of God's disciplinary action in David's life. Physical manifestations of God's discipline in David's life. And God does not always send physical illness to punish sin. But if he has to, he will allow us to go through the physical consequences for our sin in order to get our attention. In order to get our attention. So we cannot go up to a brother and sister, hey, you're living in sin, God is punishing you. We just finished the book of Job. You remember that his friends did that? They did it wrongly, right? They, took, they used God's word out of context. And it wasn't so much that God was punishing Job, and God does not always use physical illness to punish you and I, but in this case, he was. In this case, he allowed it. We see Paul to the Corinthians in regard to taking communion lightly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30 through 32, This is why many among you are weak and sick, Paul says. And a number of you have fallen asleep or have died, he says. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Look at that. We wouldn't come under such discipline. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined that we will not be finally condemned with the world, that we wouldn't finally be punished with the world, right? This is why God displays His discipline upon our lives. And no, it's not always in physical illnesses, but in chapter 38, it's a physical illness that God is allowing David to pay for his consequences, for his foolishness. And he later he's later going to say that in the same chapter. And what do we learn as we just read there in Corinthians that God's heart is to forgive us. God's heart is to forgive us. What does it say? That we wouldn't be judged in this way. We are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. His heart is to forgive us. His purpose is to draw us back to himself. Look what it says now in verse 3. Verse 3, it says here, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger nor any health in my bones because of my sin. Look what it says there. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger nor any health in my bones because of what? My sin. My sin, confession, taking place here. He's not turning the blame away. Often we blame others and other times we blame the devil. Lord, what happened? You, You know, Bro, what happened? You slipped up. Oh, yeah, the, the devil made me do it. The devil? Right, what about, what about Adam? Adam, where are you? Well, the woman you gave me, Lord, she made me do it. We often blame others, and then we often blame the devil. What does David do? He says, no, no, no. Lord, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. Confession, because of my sin. Look what it says in verse 4. For whose iniquities? For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Because of whose foolishness? Because of my foolishness, my iniquities, my sin. Look at this confession before God from David. What an example we have here. And what does he say? My wounds are foul and festering because of my Foolishness. David continues to confess his sin before God. He recognized that the displeasure of God in his life, not only spiritually, uh, he recognized that the displeasure of God in his life was not only spiritually, but physically. Physically. Right? He's experiencing. He says, there's no health in my bones. There's no soundness in my flesh. We see that it's something tangible. Something's wrong with his skin. There's no strength in his bones. Right? He's fatigued. He's... Um, Deteriorating almost. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul. There's something in his, there's some type of condition on him. They're foul. Festering because of my foolishness. Foolishness. He describes the state of his skin and the weakness of his bones. It might have been through an illness or simply because of the stress that he had in spiritual agony. Spiritual agony. Spiritual agony. Have you ever been in a moment in your life where you're in distress because of spiritual agony? Right? Spiritual agony before God. I can't believe I fell. I can't believe I did wrong. Lord, please forgive me. I confess my sins and get what's we'll oh, now I have a headache. Right? I don't even want to eat today because I've done the Lord wrong. Well, he's experiencing some spiritual agony and stress. He was able to see the evident hand of God on his misery and pain. He was, he says, because of your anger, right? He's able to see the hand of God on his misery and pain, but he acknowledges that it is, not, it is not for no reason. He admits that he is being rightly judged. He says, because of my sin, right? There's awareness and confession. There's awareness and confession. He does not try to hide. He does not try to push it under the rug, He confesses before God. He says, Lord, I know I fell. I know that you're rightly judging me. I know that you're rightly rebuking me. I deserve it. But in verse 1, but please don't correct me in your wrath. Please don't correct me in your anger. Right, and what happens here? Verse 5 or verse 4, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. He felt pressed down by the guilt and the weight of his sin, a tremendous pressure, a tremendous pressure. Man, this, this is such a vivid picture, and I'm sure we can all relate. I know I can. Oh, Lord, you're pressing upon my heart. You're pressing upon my life in conviction and guilt. And guilt. He says, my iniquities, like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. I can't take it anymore, Lord. What is he doing here? He, he thought that an honest confession of his misery would move the compassion of God. You know, your children have done that, and they exaggerate, right? Right? You hit them, you smack them, right? You're correcting them. They start yelling and going crazy and crying. Don't do it anymore. An exaggeration. I'm going to move the compassion of my mom. I'm going to move the compassion of my, my, my father, right? This is what David is doing. And he wasn't exaggerating, but he says, Lord, look at my misery. Please have compassion on me, right? And what happens in verse 5? My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. He acknowledges the consequences, consequences being paid because of foolishness. His foolishness. He describes the state of his wounds. They're festering, meaning a rotting or decay of the flesh. George Horn, a Bible commentator, says this. Sin is the wound of the flesh, which must be washed with the tears of repentance, cleansed by the blood of Christ and healed by the Spirit of the Holy One. Sin is the wound of the flesh, which must be washed by the tears of repentance, cleansed by the blood of Christ, and healed by the Spirit of the Holy One. What do we see here? That God is more willing to forgive and restore us, but He will allow us to pay the repercussions of our sins. He will. Right? If, you, if you lived the life of sin before, whether it be drugs or wherever it would be, you come to the Lord and yes, all things become brand new. Absolutely. Right? The old things have passed away, the Word of God says. But if I've sinned, if I'm carrying... God will sometimes allow us to carry thoughts or even health repercussions that we now have to pay here on earth until we get to heaven because of our sin in the past. He will allow it. Not always. Sometimes He'll heal us completely. But sometimes He will allow it. And this is what's taking place here now. Right? God is more than willing to forgive our sins, but He will allow us to pay the repercussions of our sins. And guess what this means here for David, what He's finding out, and for you and I? Just because me and you receive the mercy of God does not mean that you will escape the consequences. It doesn't, because God is loving, but He's also just, and His justice must be satisfied in our life. Not just because He's loving, Not just because we receive his mercy means that we're going to escape the consequences of our sin. Because God loves us, he must chasten us. He must correct us, right? What do we see here in the life of a believer? Because sometimes we live in such a way that, hey, it's just one moment. It's just one night. I'm just going to do this today and God will forgive me. Oh, God forgive us. God forgive us that we ever think that way. Because listen to this, church. A moment of pleasure will cause a lifetime of misery. A moment of pleasure will cause a lifetime of misery in your life. Yes, God will forgive you. Yes, God will restore you back into the ministry. But he will allow you to pay the consequences of your sin. Because he's a loving father. Because he must remind you that you're his. Right? Grace, mercy, and forgiveness, they're not a license for us to sin. God will allow you to walk in. Listen, God will allow you to walk in, but not abuse His grace. He will not allow you to abuse His grace. I was ministering to a brother a few years ago. He says, Lord, I'm not, he says, brother, I'm not walking with the Lord 100%. Right, he's sharing, and and, and, and there's there's no such thing as 100% or not. You either are or you're not. Right? And, And I know what he's living, how he's living, and he says, but the Lord is blessing me. I said, I said, be careful, be careful with, with, with you saying that, right? Because it, it's not so much the Lord's blessing, you're standing on a thread of grace, and any moment is going to rip, right? God is going to allow you to walk in His grace, but not abuse it, and eventually His wrath, eventually His discipline must be satisfied because He's just, because He loves you, because He loves me, right? Look what happens in verse 6. He says, I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I am mourning all day long. Look at this state of his physical and and spiritual being. For my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. What is he doing here? He describes a severe depression and bodily afflictions, a terrible disease that's come upon him. We don't know what it is. There are suggestions of what it might be. We know later in Psalms 51 and in the different Psalms of penitence, like, like Psalms 51, we know what he's crying about. We know what he's repenting about. In this Psalms, we really don't know, but we can see the hand of God in rebuke, in physical and spiritual illness, right? There's a terrible dece- disease that's come upon him. The pain of David's sin, it says, affected him at all times. What does it say in verse 6? I'm troubled. Uh, He says, Bow down greatly. I go mourning all day long. It affects him at all times. All day long. Have you ever been all day long full with the burden of your sin, guilty? All day long. You start to cry, Lord, please forgive me. I can't take it anymore. Right? I'm not eating. I'm not sleeping. I can't stand to stand before your presence because of conviction. Right? And then he says, he says he's bowed down greatly, bowed down in the body by pain and in his soul by guilt. He's bowed down because his body, there's so much pain and in his soul, there's so much guilt. He has to bow down and confess before God. And then what happens in verse uh, seven, he says, for my loins are full of inflammation. It is suggested that this might be, be referring to a problem with his kidneys, that's just a, a, a suggestion, but the point is that he has a physical illness. That something in his body is not being caused to, uh, you know, inflammation. Maybe he was experiencing painful kidney stones as we know them today, right? He says, my loins are full of inflammation. And then he says, what? There's no soundness in my flesh. There's no quietness in the soul of David. Maybe he was anxious in pain and in guilt. There's no quietness in my soul. How much does that resound when me and you are convicted, right? We come to the, we, 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 we enter our personal devotion. We open up God's word and we're living in a way that does not please God. And what happens? This happens here. There's no soundness in my flesh. I can't take it. I'm anxious in pain and in guilt before God. Right? And then he says in verse uh, 8, I am feeble and severely Broken, feeble, frail, severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. He describes the weakness and fatigue. Brokenness in sickness and in guilt. He describes weakness and fatigue. You would have almost thought if you read this, you know, if David was living today, he might have had COVID, right? Weakness and fatigue. Brokenness in sickness and in guilt. He groans, he says there, because of the turmoil of my heart. Because of the disquietness of his heart. Have you been before in the presence of the Lord and you had a disquietness in your heart? My heart is not quiet. It continues to beat. It continues to pant. I can't take it in conviction. In guilt before the Lord. He groans, in the, he groans because of the disquietness of his heart. It's restless and uneasy. Have you ever gone to a brother and sister before and said, please pray for me? My heart is anxious in guilt. My heart is anxious, right, with conviction before God. And his rebuke, his discipline is taking place in my life right now. I need prayer. This is the heart of David right now, right? We saw in the first eight verses that we must confess our sins before God. My iniquities, my sin, my foolishness. Now we're going to see in verses 9 to 14 that we must be transparent before God. Number two of tonight, we must be transparent before God. Look what it says in verse 9. Lord, all my desire is before you. I've confessed. Now I need to come before you and be transparent. All my desire is before you. And my sighting is not hidden from you. My heart pants, it beats. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. His desire and groaning was not hidden from God. He was broken and transparent in prayer. There's a difference between confession, I've done wrong, and transparency, right? Confession is I've done wrong, right? Not being transparent says I've done wrong, but Lord, I'm okay. No. He says I've done wrong, but transparency, Lord, I'm not okay. Everything is not fine. All my desire is before you and my sighting is not hidden from you. My heart pants My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. He's transparent in prayer. He did not try to hide his miserable state. How many times do we even come to church and amid amid each other, we try to hide our miserable state from one another? How are you doing this evening, sister? I'm blessed. How are you, brother? I'm good. Right? Very rarely do you hear, oh, man, I'm miserable. Can you pray for me? He did not try to hide his state, all his desire was made verbally known to God. Verbally known to God. Right? We have to think, well, why do I have to, if God already knows my heart, why do I have to pray and express it? Well, here we have the example of David. All my desire, Lord, is made known to you. He said it's before you. And we often have an instinct to justify ourselves in prayer sometimes, Right? Or like Adam and Eve, what do we try to do? We try to hide from the Lord in our sin, right? David doesn't do that. We see that from David, a heart that genuinely desires God in confession will be fully transparent before him in prayer. A heart that genuinely desires God in confession will be fully transparent before him in prayer. Fully transparent. Lord, all my desire is before you. Verse 10, my heart pants, my strength fails me. He does not pretend to be in a stable condition. He's he's confessed that he sinned. And now he's transparent about his physical and spiritual decay. His heart was beating with conviction and also with pain. He felt like his life and the light of his eyes was leaving him. What does he say there at the end of verse 10? As for the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. Lord, I feel like I'm going to die. The the weight of the physical pain, the weight of my spiritual pain, of conviction. I feel like the light of my eyes is, is going from me. And then he continues to be transparent in verse 11. What do we read? It says, my loved ones and my friends stand aloof. And my plague, from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. It might have been COVID if they're standing afar off, right? They're keeping that six feet. Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. But those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all day long. But But like a deaf man I do not hear, and I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I am like a man who does not hear, and whose mouth is no response. He is transparent about his miserable condition of loneliness, his helplessness. Oh, that is hard for you and I, right? because of our pride and our ego. We don't like to be vulnerable. We don't like to be vulnerable before people. And you know why? Often we can't be vulnerable before people because we have not been vulnerable before God. Right? If, If we're able to come to the feet of Jesus, the presence of God, and be vulnerable before Him, then out of the presence of God, I can go to my brother, I can go to my sister, and say, look, please pray for me. This is what I'm going through. This is the state of my heart right now. And what does he say now in in, in verse 11? He said, my loved ones and my family and my friends stand aloof. Stand aloof. What does that say? That you are not the only one who pays for the consequences of your sin. You're not. There's repercussions. Family, friends. They're going to have to stand aloof. They're going to have to stand distant and unresponsive is what aloof means. Distant and unresponsive. Hey, my friends, my family, they've gone away. Because of my sin, because of my pain, because of the consequences that I'm paying, Lord. I'm being transparent before you. This is the state of my misery right now. And oftentimes we think, right? Well, this is a moment of pleasure. And if I get caught, if I feel conviction, it's only going to affect me. That's a lie from the enemy. That's a lie from the enemy, right? His friends and family, they either did not care or could not help him and they had to stay distant. Right? And then what happens? He says, those who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all day long. In addition to the loneliness he felt because of his friends and family, he also faced enemies who were determined to kill him. We know that all through the life of King David, right, he had... Saul, and then different people and armies and militaries that were out to kill him. Not only do I feel lonely, I feel separated from you, God, from my friends and from my family, but I feel the enemy coming against me. This is a state of misery because of conviction, because of foolishness, because of my iniquities, because of my sin. This is how I feel right now, Lord. And then what does he say? I am like a deaf man and do not hear, and like a mute who does not open his mouth. In his depression, in his affliction, in his loneliness, he felt hopeless, defenseless against the threats against his life. He says, I'm like a mute man. I don't even want to speak. I'm defenseless. I have nothing to say against the attacks and the threats against my life. He felt powerless to respond to the attacks. He desperately cries out to God, Lord, I'm lonely. My friends and my family, they stand aloof. My enemies, they come against me. And Lord, I'm helpless. I'm desperate, I'm crying out because I'm like a mute man. I'm like a deaf man, I pretend to not even hear because I'm defenseless. Lord, I need you right now. I'm confessing and now I'm being transparent before you. But then what happens, starting in verse 15, now comes the hard thing. I must repent. I must repent, verse 15, for in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord, my God. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me. Lest when my foot slips, they exalt themselves against me. See, after the sorrow and his confession and transparency before God, David repents. His only hope in his sorrow is to place himself before the Lord and to seek the mercy of God in repentance. We have to ask yourself and myself, if that is our only hope when we're feeling this way in misery, After confession, after repentance, who are we going to and how are we going to them? Are we going to the Lord? Are we going with confession? Are we going with transparency? And is there genuine and true repentance in our life? He says, For in you, O Lord, I hope you will hear, O Lord, my God, a desperate cry. You will hear, O Lord. His only hope in his sorrow is placing himself before the Lord and seeking the mercy of God in repentance. This is the sinner's only hope, to seek the mercy of God in repentance. Yours and my hope, that we would seek the mercy of God. That is our hope. Not just seek it, but in repentance. His affliction pressed him to put his hope in God. He allowed his sorrow to push him towards God. Listen, not away from God. What happens when we're pressed down with conviction and we're paying for the consequences of our sin? I'm not going to church anymore. Lord, you turn your back on me. No, no, no. No, David says, No, Lord, for in you I hope, O oh Lord. In you. I can't stand far away from you. I need to come towards you. In you I hope, O oh Lord. David allowed his sorrow, listen, to lead him to repentance. David allowed his sorrow in him to lead him to God, not away from God. Why do we say that? Because the Bible speaks about a good sorrow and a bad sorrow. A godly sorrow versus a worldly sorrow. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. Even if I cause you to sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you. But only for a little while. Yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, Paul says, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. You know that God intends a specific sorrow on our life? He intends it. If me and you are living in sin, God intends that me and you would be sorrowful. Not to turn away from Him, but that our sorrow would lead us to Him. He says... Paul says, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow. Listen, godly sorrow. If he has to say godly, it means that there's also worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Brings death. David confesses. David is transparent. And then he goes to repentance. Lord, for in you I hope. Godly sorrow leads him to God. Godly sorrow leads him to the presence of his Savior. Leads him to repentance. Why does Paul say that worldly sorrow leads to death? Because worldly sorrow leads to death because your only sorrow, you got got caught. Being in ministry now for as long as we have, we've seen many people, some that come before you say, look, I've been living in sin. Please pray for me. And then you have others, hey, brother, you know, I just found out about X, Y, Z. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm repented before God. Well, well let's talk about it. Let's pray. Let's, let's see the Lord restore you because that's his heart. A few months later, that person is back into sin. Worldly sorrow. You're only sorry you got caught. And secretly, you want to go back to sin. You're sorry because your time of sin is over because you got caught. That's worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow leads to, for in you, O Lord, I hope you will hear, O Lord, my God. Verse 16, for I have said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves against me. See, true repentance is not only turning away from sin. Listen, true repentance is not only turning away from sin, but it's also turning to God. It's not only turning away from sin, it's also turning to God. Or else the turning away is in the flesh and therefore temporary. Of course, you turned away. We caught you. But if you don't turn to God, you're eventually going to go back. True repentance is not only turning away from sin, it's also turning to God. It's also running to God for a new, O Lord, I hope. David claimed. Then he says, hear me lest they rejoice over me. He knows that his only hope is to turn to God. This is godly sorrow because David is choosing to wait in his only hope. He runs to God and waits for deliverance. Are me and you, are you and I, are we turning? Are we running to God in sorrow? Is sorrow leading me and you to put our hope in Christ or in something else? I got caught in sin. I feel the gate, the guilt, and the pressure, the conviction, the discipline of God. Therefore, I'm going to partake in this. Therefore, I'm going to leave the church. Therefore, I'm gonna discontinue or depart from fellowship. Or it says, I need to go to the foot of the cross. I need to go to where hope is found, and that is in you, O oh Lord, David said. Which one is it doing to us? Is Zoro Producing, like to David, godliness in our life. Because there is sorrow that God intends. And that is sorrow that leads to repentance. Sorrow that leads to godliness. And here's his repentance continues in verse 17. For I am ready to fall and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies are vigorous and they are strong. And those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries because I follow what is good. His sorrow is pressing down on David as he says in verse 17. I am ready to fall and my sorrow is continually before me. It's pressing down on him. He feels like he's getting ready to fall. And what does he say there in verse 18? This repentance here. For I would declare... My iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. You know what he's saying? I will confess. He will be in deep distress over his sin. Sorry over it. But the idea of anguish is I'm going to be in deep distress over it. This is genuine repentance before God. I'm going to declare my iniquity. I'm going to be in a state of anguish over my sin. Lord, forgive me. I'm running to you now. And what do we see that after discipline, followed by repentance, comes loving kindness and reassurance? Loving kindness and reassurance. First John verse 1 9. I'm, ch- I'm sorry, cha- First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you see the beauty of God's love and grace there? Yes, he's loving. Yes, he's just. He must discipline us if we wrong him, if we sin against him. But he's still loving. And it's his desire that he's faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And then he says, What? My enemies are vigorous and they are strong, and those who hate me, who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those who render evil for good. It reminds me of a party in government. They are my adversaries because I follow what is good. He cries out to God for help in light of his enemies coming against him for no good reason. He says, these people, they're paying evil for good. I feel sorry for the branches of government and politicians who pay evil for good one day. Because one day, the people who responded to them... And they one day are going to have to respond to God about how they judged. And David is saying what? He cries out before God in light of his enemies coming against him for no good reason. The idea that David is saying here is they hate me for no reason, God. What does he say? Because I follow what is good. Have you ever felt like you're being disliked for no reason? By your own family. By your own co-workers. By your employer. I think the church... Even in California right now, we feel like we're being disliked for no reason, right? I can speak on behalf of our state, we do. So he says, they hate me for no reason, because what? I follow what is good. How much of the media and certain parties of government today coming against the believer and the church today simply because we follow what is good, right? And then what does he say in verse 21? Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste, be quick to help me, O Lord, my salvation. O Lord, my deliverer. David, please, for God to hurry and help him. I've confessed, Lord. I've been transparent, Lord. I'm repenting, God. Please hurry, O Lord, of my salvation. Please hurry, O Lord, my deliverer. Make haste to help me. O Lord, my salvation. A psalm of penitence, of repentance, remorse. What a beautiful example we have in David. And now transitioning to chapter 38. I'm sorry, 39. In chapter 38, we see and we saw that the only hope for the believer in sin is confession, transparency, and repentance. The only hope for you and I in sin is confession, transparency, and repentance. In confessing, being transparent, and repenting, we're going to see in chapter 39, that wisdom is found. Wisdom is found. In confession and repentance, wisdom is found. And you're going to see that in the life of David as he continues to pray before God in chapter 39. David's going to start to respond with wisdom to the correction of God. And in chapter 39, he addresses two things. Our complaints to God and the brevity or the shortness of life our complaints to God, and the brevity or the shortness of life. Look what it says in verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle, while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace, even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me, while I was musing or meditating, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. His prayer of repentance was one of salvation. He wanted the deliverance of God, right? And now he's asking God, that's what, that's what happened in chapter 38. His prayer of repentance was one of, Lord, save me, deliver me. And now he's asking for God's help in guarding his way and in guarding his mouth. What does he say there in verse 1? I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle. Look at that picture. Look at that picture. At the end of chapter 38, verse 22, he says, O Lord of my salvation. David was asking for deliverance and submits to God's lordship. He says, O Lord, O Master, I've repented. I've come before you. You are now my master. Deliver me. Right, He recognizes that he has wronged his master and wants him not to be. And now we see here in verses 1, he recognizes that he's wronged his master and wants him to not only be the Lord of his life in deliverance, but also to be the Lord of his mouth. And there's a difference. Because oftentimes we come here to church, right? We raise our hands, I gave my life to the Lord. He's the Lord of my life. And then we walk out and amongst amongst friends and family and coworkers, wherever it would be. There's no consistency with him being the Lord of our mouth. Oh, he's the Lord of my life. But brother, I heard how you were speaking earlier. I heard the things you were saying earlier, the vulgar, the words. Has he become the Lord of my mouth? This is what David is saying. Lord, guard my ways, but also restrain my mouth. He is saying, guard my ways. I will restrain my mouth when there's a season that he says, when the wicked are before me. You know what David is saying? I will not complain in front of non-believers. Think about that, church. He says, I will not complain in front of non-believers. Because what has he been doing in verse 38? Lord, I'm sorry. I confess. I repent. I'm transparent. I've done wrong. Lord, your hand has pressed down upon me. He says, but I'm not going to do that, Lord, in front of non-believers. How dare I? Lord, guard my ways and restrain my tongue, he says. He did not want to blame. Listen, he did not want to blame or misrepresent God for his troubles or for God's correction. Think about that. He said, he says, I will restrain my mouth with the muzzle when the wicked are before me. He says, when the non-believers are before me, Lord, I'm not going to do this. Because I don't want to give off the idea that you're treating me wrongfully. I don't want to give off the idea that you're an angry God. I deserve it. I deserve to be punished. He did not want to blame God, nor did he want to misrepresent him for his troubles, for his correction. And you and I can say, well, I've never done that. But think about how we speak. We often do this in casual conversation or in social media. My life is this. I can't believe I'm going through that. And God this, and God that, or maybe not even that, but people know that we come to church once, twice a week, and we portray our life to be miserable. What if that's your life? I don't want it, right? We give a different idea of what it means to walk with the Lord. We misrepresent God. Oh, I feel bad right now in conviction and in guilt. Brother, I can't hang out with you. Or somebody who is a non-believer. right? We must be careful how we speak in front of non-believers especially when it comes to the conviction of our lives, when we're being disciplined by God. What happened to Moses when he misrepresented God to the people of Israel, to the nation of Israel, and he hit the rock two times? He wasn't able to enter into the promised land. There was a misrepresentation of God before the people. Lord, please forgive me, protect me. David says, my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle. You know, church, that most of our problems are issues of life. As believers are lordship problems. Most of our issues and problems are our life are lordship problems. Why are they lordship problems? Because we do not have an issue with God being our Savior. We just don't want Him to be our Lord. Lordship problems. Lord, yes, you died for my sins on the cross and now I have salvation. And yes, I want to confess that you're my Lord, but is there evidence that you're guarding my ways? Is there evidence that you're restraining my tongue? In the former chapter, David refrains from speaking in front of his enemies due to feeling helpless and defenseless. Remember that? Here he chooses to remain silent even from saying something good. What does he say in verse 2? I was mute with silence. I held my peace even... From good. Meaning, I have something good to say, and Lord, I kept my mouth shut. Think about Proverbs 17, verse 28. Even fools are thought wise if they say a good quote. No, it says if they keep silent. And discerning if they hold their tongues. And sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, sometimes we think that because we have something good to say, we must say it. But wisdom often says nothing. It's been, said, it's been said before, right, that a wise man once told me this, nothing. Oftentimes wisdom is seen in quietness, in the shutting of my mouth, lest, David said, I sin before you. Lest I sin before you. Proverbs 14, verse 33, wisdom rests in the heart of him, Who has understanding, but what is in the heart of fools is made known. Listen to that. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. It rests. It doesn't speak. It rests in the heart of him who has understanding. See, wisdom speaks what and when he has to. Wisdom will speak what and when he has to. When he has to, right? Otherwise, it just rests in the heart of him who has understanding. Some of the wisest, older men that I know, they only speak what and when they have to. And guess what? They have a lot of good to say, but they don't. They'll speak what and when they have to. Pastor Raul Rees says a lot of people have, or people, sometimes people have a lot to, uh, or speak a lot, but they have nothing to say. They speak a lot, but have nothing to say. And what does he say here, David? My sorrow was stirred up. I was mute with silence, and I held my peace, even from saying something good. And this caused the sorrow that I already had in chapter 38. It caused it to stir up. His silent, uh, He was silent, but also in sorrow that was stirred up. And then what happens in verse 3? My heart was, not, was hot within me. It started to burn. And while I was meditating or musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. I couldn't take it anymore. I was silent. I was quiet before you, you know, like a wise man. I did not want to sin, but eventually I could not hold my silence any longer. My heart was hot within me. And while he was meditating in silence, he could not restrain his sorrow because it was causing sorrow in his life. His fire burned with him in anxious, in anger over his situation. And then what does he speak? Verse 4. This is the wisdom that comes from confession and repentance. Lord, make me to know my end. This almost sounds funny, right? Lord, make me to know when I'm going to die. Lord, make me to know my end, he says. That's the last thing I want to know, right? We don't think about that. We plan for the future. I have a trip planned next month. I don't want to know my end, right? Make me to know my end, and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Wow. Make me to know my end. He cries out, help me to see the things in the internal perspective. Lord, help me to see the things in the eternal perspective. He pleads for wisdom to live in light of how frail and short his life is. Isn't that how me and you should live? Isn't that how we should pray? Isn't that how we should study the word of God? Lord, I know that my life is short. And I know that only one thing is going to last, and that is what I do for you. So help me to see life. Help me to see work. Help me to see my everyday situation and circumstances and relationships in light of the eternal, David is saying. Because we often view death as something that will happen in the future, especially if you're young. We do not think it can happen tomorrow. But David says, help me to measure my days. I don't want to waste time. I want to have an eternal perspective. Lord, help me to measure my days. He wanted to know he wanted wisdom to know what really has eternal value. He wanted, to, Lord, help me to know my ways, help me to measure my days, help me to know my end. I want to know what has eternal value versus eternal consequences because I'm in sorrow. Help me to know what matters because my life is frail. I can die tomorrow. And we often live as believers as if we're going to die 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, right? And we plan and we pour into our 401 and you should plan, prepare, right? But my focus is in the eternity, David is saying. And then what does he say in verse 5? Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths and my age is nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. That is funny. He cries out, right? In light of viewing things with the eternal perspective, David understood that man in his absolute best state is nothing but vapor. Think about that. The prophet Isaiah says that the righteousness of man before God is as what? Filthy rags. David says... In light, Lord, in light of you helping me measure my days and having eternal perspective. In light of you allowing me to see what matters and and what has eternal value as opposed to eternal consequences. Lord, even at my best state, my life is but a vapor. It's gone here one day and then gone the next. And David and all his accomplishments even at his best state, was no more than a puff of smoke, of steam. Here one day and then gone. Think about that. He was the king. He was a champion, special forces warrior, a poet, a musician. He oversaw Israel. And he says, Lord, it doesn't matter. My life is but a vapor. Lord, help me to see the eternal. Because when I'm gone, all this is gone. I don't take it with me. And I don't know who the, how the next person is going to spend it. And that's what his, his son Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes. Life is vanity, the vanity of vanities, to work and to labor and to build riches, right? So that the next person can come and spend it wrongfully. And then he says, what? There at the beginning of verse 5, you have made my days as handbreadths. He compares his life to the smallest unit of measurement in Israel at the time, handbreadths, which would compare today to maybe a few inches. My life is that tiny, that miniature, that insignificant. And then what happens? Verse 6. He says, Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps, heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Wow. Wow. See, many people live without the eternal perspective. They live for the now, and they ignore the shortness of life, the frailty of life. They live for the now. They ignore that, right? They, they, they don't live life, even believers. They don't live life with the eternal perspective. And what happens to these people? It says in verse 6, David says, Every man walks about like a shadow, like a shadow, meaning they, they live life with no substance. It's just a shadow. There's no meaning. Nothing that they do is going to last because only what you do for the Lord has eternal value. Right? And then what does he say? Surely they busy themselves in vain and they heap up riches and do not not know who will gather them because eventually they die. And what happens to their cars and their house and their riches and their 401? Somebody else spends it. Somebody else does away with it. They busy themselves in uselessness, David says, they're blind to the eternal. People heap up riches so that when they die, won't know how someone else spends it. the fruit of their labor for so many years, and then they die. And people plan. I work in the financial industry, and I work specifically with helping people s- set up a plan for retirement, right, and investing, and people dedicate their whole life to a 401 and an IRA, and I'm going to plan, I'm going to retire, I'm going to sell my house, And I'm going to get out of California because it's too expensive. I'm going to go to a different state and I'm going to live by the lake and I'm going to do all of this. And then bam, gone. I had five more years to retire. David says, no, Lord, help me to have an eternal perspective. Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, chapter 1, verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and a grasping for the air. Try to grasp the air right now. It's all vanity. It's gone. It means nothing, King Solomon says, the son of David. Your effort, your gifts, your labor and time should be invested not in securing your life now, but in building and securing your eternity. And this is what David recognized. He said, I recognize that I'm the king. I'm a musician. I'm a special force army. He had the biggest of armies, right? What was the song? That Saul killed thousands and David killed ten thousands. He was the king. He was a musician. He was a poet. And so I, I recognize that my effort, my gifts, my labor, and my time, they shouldn't be invested in the now or in securing my life now, but in building and securing my eternity. Help me to measure my days. Help me to know my end. Because everything you toil for now will vanish. It's like a shadow. And then what happens in verse 7? And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. This is the wisdom that happens after confession and repentance. He says, Lord, life is nothing. Give me an eternal perspective. My hope is in you. Help me to know my end. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth, because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When the rebukes you correct me, you correct man for iniquity. You make his beauty melt away like moth. Surely, every man is but a vapor." David, again, recognizes that God was the one involved in his correction and rebuke. Lord, I know that you're correcting me. Lord, I know that you're rebuking me. And it's not just because. I know that I deserve it. I've wronged you. I've sinned. I've confessed now. I've been transparent. I come before you in repentance. And now I'm praying, and you're cultivating wisdom in my life to see the eternal, to know that the now doesn't matter, that I need to secure my eternity, not my later future here on earth. And in light of what he says at the end of verse 11, surely every man is but a vapor, David and yours, and my only hope and expectation is in God himself. That's what he says in verse 7, my hope is in you. In light of everything that I do today, in light that all of that will vanish, in light that the eternity is the only thing that matters, our hope is in Jesus Christ himself. Not in your bank account, Not in your real estate, not in everything else. David had the kingdom. He said, my hope is in you. Help me to measure my days. Help me to know my end. My hope is in you. Deliver me. This is what he's saying. And then he says in verse 12 this. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you. As a sojourner, as all my fathers were, remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. He ends this psalm with a humbled prayer, asking God for favor and to regain strength. A humbled prayer and wisdom, asking God for favor and to regain strength. He cries out in pain and repentance. He says, Hear my prayer, right? O Lord, give ear to my cry, and do not be silent at my tears. He's humbled before God. He says, Lord, I need your favor, but I also need your strength. I need to regain strength because emotionally, spiritually, physically, because of my sin, because of my foolishness, because of my iniquities, because of your correction, because of your rebuke, I need to regain strength. Lord, please strengthen me. Please comfort me. Please uplift me. I've done wrong. You know what he's saying? Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent on my tears. You know what David is saying, in other words, Lord, be touched and moved by my tears. Be touched and moved by my cries. Please hear me, God, I need you. Lord, regain my strength. Restore me. In, in, in a, I think in chapter 51, another song of penitence, he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I need you, God. And then he says what? For I am a stranger with you. Not a stranger from you. I am a stranger with you. A sojourner as all my fathers were. David was not only a citizen of Israel, he was the king. So why is he saying I'm a sojourner, right? Or a stranger? But he says I'm a stranger with you, God. He was not a stranger of the country or the nation of Israel. He was a stranger with God From Israel. He recognized that his home was in heaven. In light of the eternal. In light that you've given me the wisdom to measure my days. To know my end. Lord, I am a stranger with you. This is the wisdom he received. A prayer that comes from the eyes of one who sees the eternal. Who has eternity placed in his heart. He says... Help me to measure my days. Help me to know my end. And then he says what? I am a sojourner with you, verse 13. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. His prayer is that before he is no more, before he does go to heaven, before he goes to where he does have citizenship, Right Before he does go to the eternal where he has labored to secure his eternity. Help me to regain strength while I'm here. Restore me. Back to the joy of my salvation. Restore me from my sin. I've confessed. I've repented. Right. I've been transparent before you. In light of that, Lord, you've given me wisdom. Now restore me. His prayer is that before he is no more, before he has gone from the earth where he would to where he does belong, that God would show him mercy and that he would remove his correction from him and allow him to regain strength. That is, my, that is his prayer. He says that I may regain strength before I go away and now I'm no more because you've given me an eternal, an eternal perspective. You've shown me my end. You've helped me to measure my days. And in light of my repentance, I know that only what I do for you is going to last. But until I get there, Lord, forgive me. Until I get there, Lord, restore me. Until I get there, Lord, I confess. I'm sorry. Restore me to the joy of my salvation. Help me to regain physical. Help me to gain regain spiritual strength. Because in chapter 38, he mentions the dark guilt that he feels. And we see that his weakness was due to the heavy hand of God in rebuke. His prayer, his prayer here in chapter 39 is one of an urgent request to God, demonstrating his trust in him. Let's pray.